When Shaila asked me to uh, talk about uh, simplicity and, and uh, relationship, um, the first thing that jumped out at me in, that came to my mind was a story uh, from the from the canon, which um, which I have just enjoyed and has been a, uh, a standard for me, a guiding um, story for me for years. So I'm just going to start with it. It's um, it's referred too often as the quarrel at Kosambi. So some of you may be familiar with it. Um, it's a, a story about the time when the Buddha was in Kosambi. And I guess he had thousands of monks. They always say he had thousands of monks. And I always wonder how he could address thousands of monks without a PA system. So maybe it was just a lot of monks, or maybe there were thousands of monks and the, those in the back didn't hear. Um, but in any case, the, it was large enough that there was uh, there had evolved a master of the vinya, of the rules of conduct for the monks, and there was also a master or leader among the among the um, the monks themselves of the of the dharma of the of the Buddha's teachings, and apparently one one day the master of the dharma left a small bowl of water in a small dish of water in uh, the latrine. And the master of the Vinaya said, that's an offense, we need confession, we need, you know, and the, and the master of the Dharma said, that is not, that is just not an offense. This is just, and the, you know, so it started going. It's an offense, it's not an offense. You know, so it's more filling, less taste. And, you know, it, it went, it, it, they went back and forth and, after it wasn't very long before people started choosing up sides, and the whole sangha became fixated on this. Was this a was this an offense? And so the Buddha sat down with these guys and said, "You guys ought to clear this up. This is this is this is not helpful." And they just said, "Well, don't don't you worry your enlightened little head about this. We'll take care of it." But as it turned out, they didn't, and it got it got worse and more intense, and so pretty soon the Buddha left. So he went off, and we'll follow him in a minute. I like the way this resolved for the monks who were left, because they didn't want to, you know, they, they, they kept squabbling, but you know, monks are not allowed to keep food overnight. They depend on the lay people um, for their daily alms, for their food every day. And so the people in the village were a little cranky because these squabbling monks had driven the Buddha off. So they just sort of said, you know, you guys got to get your act together or else, you know, you're going to show up in town with your begging bowls and it's going to be a sad morning for you guys. So they went back and they, and they, the master of the, the Dharma said, I guess maybe it was an offense. And the other guy said, no, 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 not an offense, no problem. And, and they worked it out. So I like this, this resolution here because it's a political resolution. You know, it's, it's the, the effect of the stick, the threat, um, to motivate, motivate conduct. So this, this kind of behavior, you know, we think of as not monastic-like, but there it is. So the Buddha went off and he went to visit one of his cousins, a guy named Anuruddha. 
Anuruddha was uh, one of his cousins who who um, left to uh, who, who left home life to become uh, a monk, and he wound up living in the forest somewhere with, I guess, two or three other monks. So the Buddha tracks him down and he goes to him and he says, "Well, I'll just uh, and you know he says, how are you doing?" And then he then I'll just read from the from the scripture. This is from the Majjhima Nikaya. He says, um, I hope that you all live in concord, Anuruddha, as friendly and undisputing as milk and water, viewing each other with kindly eyes. Surely we do, Lord. But, Anuruddha, how do you do this? I mean, look at who he just left. The venerable Anuruddha replied, Lord, as to that, I think that it is gain and good fortune for me here that I am living with such companions in the holy life. I maintain acts and words and thoughts of loving kindness towards these venerable ones, both in public and in private, and I think, why should I not set aside what I am minded to do and do only what they are minded to do, and I act accordingly? It's a pretty high standard. Can you imagine adopting that standard for yourself in regard to those you live with, to set aside what you're willing to do or what you're minded to do, whatever you want, and do only what they want. It's, a, it's, it's almost an unbelievable standard. How would you do that? Hmm. What is it that keeps us from doing what they are minded to do. You want to get a sense of clinging, of attachment. It's whatever it is that keeps you from doing that. So we've got in this monastic community, we've got everything from, you know, the you know, Anuruddha and the Buddha, I guess, who, who have no preferences, uh, and those who are, you know, it's a candy mint, it's a breath mint uh, kind of thing. I want to talk a little bit about the relationship that we have. I mean, all these people are living in the same objective situation. But what, what we bring to the situation is what makes the difference. I've, I've visiting with, with uh, my son recently, and one of his friends is interested in, the, in talking about the Dharma. He's sort of interested in challenging, you know. So one, one time recently I was visiting with him, and in the midst of the discussion, he said, you know, some things are just not okay. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. Some things are not okay. We all feel that, pretty much. Some things are not okay. We're okay, pretty much. The world's a mess. Isn't that sort of, you know? We project our suffering out onto the world. We project our dissatisfaction onto the world. Some things are just not okay. Actually, flip it around. I mean, things are as they are. They are just the way they are. 
as of this moment, they couldn't be any different than the way they are. Some things are not okay. Actually, it's, I'm not okay with some things. I'm not okay with some things. So what I'd like to look at tonight, when we're talking about relationship, our relationship not just to other people, but to our experience generally, and, and, and to the world that we, we experience generally, that it's not okay stuff. I'm not okay with, with things. Because what, you know, what we are doing here is projecting that dissatisfaction. The, the, one of the characteristics of, of our experience or of existence, as the Buddha says, is it's unsatisfactory. You know, it's not capable of, of providing us with satisfaction. You just focus in on that a little bit more. There's a passage in the, Dhamma, in the Dhammapada. Um, I can't remember, and I didn't write down the... Uh, maybe it's number... Maybe it's verse 50. What others do or do not do is not of concern to me. What I do or do not do is of concern to me. And yet, aren't we just fixated on what others do and do not do? You know, just, I mean, just speaking personally here. <laughs> you know, um, It's very tough not to be. Very tough, because we just project that out onto things. The Ajahn Jumnian says, it's like the moth and the flame. Desire works like the moth and the flame. For the moth, only the flame is bright. Everything else is dark. The object of our desire totally enthralls us, totally captivates us. The only thing the moth doesn't notice is what it is that's compelling it to fly into the flame. It doesn't notice that. We don't notice that compulsion we have to try to get what we want or push away what we don't want. We, we don't like, well, my gosh, we, how, how hard is it to think of examples um, from our, our shared public life? Uh, I happen to be a political junkie. I just, I go from one one political story that, you know, to another, and I, the judgments fly like crazy, you know. One of my favorite um, aphorisms, which it's, it's such a favorite of mine, I think I use it almost uh, probably every other Dharma talk. It's, when a pickpocket meets a saint, he only sees the saint's pockets. You know, the world that we inhabit, the world that we see, is the world that's, that's set by the intentions, by the, by the wanting or not wanting that we bring to it. You know, what's going on in the mind of the pickpocket? That, that the pickpocket sees a world full of pockets and, and no saints. You know, and what's going on in our mind? The fault is, is in ourselves and not in our stars, dear Brutus. I want to focus on that, 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 that part that's, that's in ourselves. When it comes to um, our relationships, our relationships with others, and our relationship to 
our experience generally. Um, it's not the objective fact of what's going on. It's what we bring to it. Um, in, in some ways, it's, it's a, our state of mind. Um, my wife has been ill for oh, almost eight years, and we picked up a virus in Paris that presents like, like mononucleosis, and so she's pretty much uh, at home almost all the time and has been for a long time. And at first it was, she struggled with loneliness. You know, very tough because friends stopped coming by after a year or so. She's not out in the world mixing it up with everybody. She had to retire. And, um, you know, it, it's very tough. Isolation. The fact of isolation. Loneliness. And then someone suggested to her once you know, that she might consider regarding her situation as one of solitude and not loneliness. Paul Tillich, who was the, uh, uh, who was a, some of you may be familiar, was a Christian theologian of the first half of the last century. Uh, in his book, The Eternal Now, he wrote, language has created the word loneliness to express the pain of being alone. And it has created the word solitude to express the glory of being alone. The fact of the situation is the same. Everybody knows about Thoreau. I, I decided to go look up Thoreau because I thought he must have something to say about it. And he said, I've never found the companion that was so companionable as solitude. We are the for the most part, more lonely when we go abroad among men than when we stay in our chambers. Which, which I suppose is uplifting. But there was also this other quote of Thoreau's, which makes me wonder. He says, I have a great deal of company in the house, especially in the morning when nobody calls. Alan Watts, who said, I owe my solitude to other people. But, <laughs> but the idea here is that the fact of the relationship, what we might consider the objective situation, is not what determines what's, you know, whether it's satisfactory or not. We sort of have this feeling, don't we, that if we could just get our relationship right, then things would be okay. But, you know, not. There's this great story, Nasruddin, who was uh, it's a Sufi, isn't he a Sufi mythological figure? Who's, so he, he, was, um, he was asked once why he never got married. And he said, well, once I found this woman in, in Cairo, and she was just beautiful, but she had no spiritual practice. So... I, I went looking at it, and when I got to when I got to Damascus, I found this other w woman. She was really beautiful too, and but we we couldn't communicate at all. I said, and then I came across this third woman. She was wonderful. She was intelligent. She we communicated. She you know she had a spiritual practice. Everything. She was just perfect. And the guy says, well, how come you didn't get married? He said, well, unfortunately, she was looking for the perfect man. <laughs> 
we have our ideas about the way we think relationships ought to be. We do. We have ideas about how they ought to be. And when they don't match up, judgment, aversion, and it's, it's all the state of mind. It doesn't have to do with the facts of what we bring to a relationship. All relationships, remember, like all experience, are impermanent, incapable of being satisfying. Anicca, dukkha, and anatta. And, and not separate from other things. Embedded in the, in the entire range of our experience. How do we live with others? You know, the uh, Anuruddha suggests you know, a really profound renunciation, letting go of all desire in regard to others. Right? I mean, set aside what I might be minded to do um, and do only what they are, what they are minded to do. Buddha, there's some there's some other clues to the Buddha's, you know, what the Buddha might have suggested, in some other places in the scripture. In the Honeyball Sutta, in the in the Majjhima Nikaya, there's a um, the opening sequence, which isn't really about the lesson of the of the Sutta at all. But the Buddha's sitting out there in the forest and he's meditating, and another one of his cousins, a guy named Dandapani, uh, this guy wasn't so much of a fan of the Buddha's. You know, the family was not. There was some dysfunctionality out there among the cousins, and so he shows up in the forest, and he's you know walking there with his cane. He sees the Buddha sitting, and he says, "Ah, what is the whole? Tell me, tell me what the doctrine the holy man propounds. What do you what do you teach?" And and uh, the Buddha said, "The sort of doctrine, friend, where one does not contend with anyone in the cosmos." with its devas, maras, and brahmas, with its contemplatives and priests, its royalty and common folk. Does the kind of a dharma that does not contend with anyone, can you even imagine where you might, how, how do you get there? What does it mean not to contend with anyone? Can you even imagine what that might be? A little bit in another, another passage in the Majjhima, the Buddha says, a monk whose mind is released does not take sides with anyone, does not dispute with anyone. It's almost, it's almost hard to imagine. But there he's, he's suggesting that. It doesn't say take sides with anyone. Is that just because the Buddha didn't know the uh, current political climate? <laughs> You know, so we're going to sort of let ourselves off the hook. Or, you know, have we got some work to do? He says, a monk who, this is another place in the, in the Majjama again, a monk who adheres to his own views, holds on to them tenaciously, and relinquishes them with difficulty, such a monk does not fulfill the training. Set aside what I am minded to do. What, what are we willing to set aside for the Dharma? What are we willing to give up for? What opinions? I mean, isn't that 
really what we squabble over? What opinions, you know, are we ready to give up for peace of mind or for peace? Makes me think of, oh, Richard Nixon, you know. Maybe it doesn't make you think of Richard Nixon, but I'm going to make you think of Richard Nixon. Remember peace with honor? You know, Vietnam, peace with honor. What that means is peace on my terms. So what are you willing to give up? Well, not really anything, but I'd like to have some peace. What Peace with honor. You know, the things that, that stand in the way are largely um, our opinions our ideas about how things ought to be, the things that we cling to. And when we come to, when we're talking about opinions and views, ideas, clinging is believing, relying upon. You know, we don't recognize clinging often because we think that whatever these thoughts that we have are true. And if you don't, if you don't buy them, well then, you're deluded. I think of the, the young, young lady who's the cashier at the, the uh, supermarket. I always am uncomfortable and they say, how are you doing? And I just, you know, when you're feeling funky, what do you want to say? You know, I don't recommend it. Or, you know, Sylvia Borstein is one of my teachers, says uh, she, she likes to say, I couldn't be better. Because if I could, I would. And so it <laughs> sounds okay. But I was experimenting with things one day and I said, Things are looking up. I've stopped experimenting now. Now, <laughs> I, now I just say, so far, so good. Um, and I, that, gets, that gets you by. But So I said, so it seems to be looking up. And um, she said, oh, good, good. Uh, I, you're not one of these end of the world types. And I said, no, 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 no. Um, she said, good, because I'm getting married and I'd hate to think the world was about to come to an end. I said, well, you know, the universe has been around about 18 billion years, probably got a few more to go. She said, oh, I don't think it's 18 billion years. I didn't get it. I said, oh, you're in the 13 billion. It's a university town, I thought, you know. No, no, 7,000 years, she said. Uh, you know, well, I just, I had no chance. I, you know. That interaction didn't go so well. Um, <laughs> she, she wanted to tell me the radiocarbon data didn't, wasn't as exact as they thought, and I wanted to tell her that astronomical measurements said da-da-da-da-da. So. And then, then my song on Monday nights, they heard about it for months, <laughs> literally. But what is that about? It's what you believe, really, and you, what you think is true, clinging, relying on that, as a basis for action. One of the major teachings of the Buddha is about uh, our ethical behavior. And in a very real way, the Dharma eye is an ethical eye. If you see things clearly as they are, that's the first noble truth. It's the truth of suffering, the truth of unsatisfactoriness. If you see things as they are, you see a world full of suffering beings. 
And the heart of the Eightfold Path, right speech, right action, right livelihood, it's the ethical component. And it's not, you know, people, it's, we're so heavily conditioned in the West to commandments and rules and right and wrong that we, it's, it's very hard to not see the precepts um, that the Buddha presented as the, as the teachings, uh, the ethical teachings for uh, lay people, not to see them as uh, morality prescriptions. And really what they are are practices. So just to review for those of you who might not be uh, quite as conversant with them, there are five. That are, that are presented, and there are five of them that are presented as practices. They're not, it's not a matter of right and wrong. In some ways, you can't break a precept. You know, A commandment that sort of depends, I think, just check it out for yourself, it sort of depends on having someone somewhere making a list and checking it twice. You know? You know, it's wrong to kill. It's wrong, to, and you say, "Oh yeah, right, wrong." And then, but this is about; these are about practices. So they're usually presented. There are five of them. The first one is usually presented for the purposes of training, for the purposes of practice. I resolve not to take life. Now, you know, it's a there's a difference between a wish and a resolve. Anybody who's ever tried to diet knows that. I wish I wasn't eating this piece of chocolate cake. Or I wish I wasn't, in my case, I wish I wasn't eating the third Dove bar. They package them in threes. It's, it's insidious. It's, no, it really is. It's, it's very bad because after you eat the first one, then the second one goes, and then you're left with one. And you know the next time you go in there, it's, it's not going to be satisfying. So you've got to eat it. <laughs> Those are the stories we you know. But it's but the the it's we're talking about a practice here. You resolve is not a wish, the resolve to not take life. The second is for the purposes of practice, for the purposes of training, I resolve not to take what is not freely given. And it's not that if you pick up the tennis balls that were left at the court because nobody's there. You know, that there's anything wrong. It's just that what's going on is that the, the wanting, the impulse to take, to get, to clutch, to, to, is just unrestrained. And we don't notice it when it's unrestrained. The third is that for the purposes of training, I resolve not to engage in sexual activity that causes harm. Well, it's, there's an energy that's, that's really incredibly powerful and you know pretty much everybody I know has fallen prey to it at some point you know it's just it's just uh, an overwhelming energy but if you resolve to restrain um, not from sexual activity but from harmful stuff that causes suffering you watch the energy arise there's a similar there's a similar precept for monastics not to not to eat after noon. 
and boy, you bump right up against hunger, right up against, you know, another biological, you know, uh, impulse. The fourth precept is for the purposes of training our resolve not to speak falsely. And I had a, I, I had a, a discussion with my my granddaughter who's eight. And we just, she lives in LA, so we get in the car and spend a lot of time in the car because she's acquainted with traffic. Um, and we had a conversation um, recently about whether exaggeration was lying or not. You know? And it's not so much whether exaggeration is lying, but what's the impulse to exaggerate? What is the motivation? What is the intention behind it? What are we trying to accomplish? Why does that even arise? So the purpose here is to practice a restraint of those impulses. And the, the fifth is for the purposes of training. Well, actually, this, this is, you know, I forgot to learn Pali, you know, the language that the, uh, the Buddhist scriptures are originally recorded in. So I've heard that this translated in two different ways, so I'll present them both. For the purposes of training, I'm, I've resolved to refrain from the use of intoxicants that cause heedlessness. It's usually alcohol, and now we add drugs. Sometimes I've heard it's, you know, for the purposes of training, I vow to refrain from the use of intoxicants to the point of heedlessness. Which, I don't know, aren't we heedless most of the time? <laughs> you know, so I don't know. Um, but the idea here is not to make it muddier. It's hard to see clearly and not to make it more difficult. Well, these are practices. They're not you know, rules that you, you get a ding if you, if you drive too fast and splatter bugs all over your windshield or have to do something about the rats in the attic or you know, the cockroaches in the kitchen or whatever. Um, but the idea here is that this practice, the behavior that we uh, that we carry out, what we the way we act, is a reflection of our wisdom. Sila is panya. Wisdom is acted out um, in our behavior, and there there um, we act according to our understanding. And, and, you know, if we think our partner or if we think our political leadership or if we think, you know, the state of the world should be in a certain way, then when it's the way it is, then we are judgmental, we get grumpy, we suffer. One of the phrases that the, uh, that the Buddha uses is uh, in regard to ethical practice is the bliss of blamelessness. And when he uses, probably, probably heard that before, um, the bliss of blamelessness, when I hear words like that uh, in the Buddha's teachings, I think of Nibbana. I think the bliss of blamelessness is about Nibbana. It's about the freedom and the bliss of acting according to deep wisdom. To the deepest wisdom. You know, if you 
see things clearly. You're not going to hurt yourself or others. We're, we may be slow learners, but we're not, I mean, we're not going to hurt ourselves or others. I remember listening to an NPR program a couple of years ago. It was coming close to the hall. NPR, you know, Jack Cornfield calls, calls NPR the Duca channel. Yeah. It's um, getting close to the holidays, and um, it, you know they had a panel on. It was talk of the nation. They had a panel on, and they were talking about how to deal with the holiday dinner, you know. And and they had a panel of experts. They had a an etiquette person there, and they had a couple of you know a psychologist, and they had you know some spiritual guy, you know, and they had a panel of experts and people would call up and say, my mother-in-law is always on my case because I still don't have a job. And what do I do about, you know, just um, maybe you know the scene. And and they, the, the experts had their advice, you know, well, when they say this, you say that and, you know, parry this response with that one and but nobody said, I, you know, I, nobody said, in the, don't you be the blockhead at the table. Don't you make matters worse. Nobody, nobody said that. You know. What we bring to our relationships is our intentions. And that's really what determines our relationships. Our relationship to others, to the people we live with. Um, And setting aside what we might choose to do. What was it? Set aside what I am minded to do. You know, we think that if we do what we're minded to do, that we'll be happy. Isn't that what we think? Isn't that the way we conduct our lives? We try to get what we want. We think if we can get what we want, we'll be happy. We've been working at that now for few years among all of us here. How's it working for you? As Dr. Phil might say. So we think we're giving up something if we give up what we might be minded to do and do what they might be minded to do. We think that of, of that as we're, we're giving up a, our chance at happiness. We do. Um, Buddha suggests maybe not. Relinquishing, abandoning, setting aside the simplicity of renunciation, of not pursuing the multitude of things, and pursuing, <clears throat> practicing the, the one, the one thing, the one practice. Letting go. And this makes this and, and letting go, my gosh, the toughest one of our opinion. How do we do that? We really think we're right. And being right is important, isn't it? You know, being right is more important than not suffering. <laughs> we sort of, we, being right, we like to be right, we want to be safe. I, I sort of think that being right, in a way, this is just my speculation, because I forgot to go to school as a psychologist too, so I'm just as pure amateurism. But you know, it seems to me that being right makes us safe somehow in a way. 
So, but the, for the Buddha, right and wrong, you know, not, not an issue. He never talks about right and wrong. He talks about suffering and not suffering. So the standard isn't, are you right? Is are you suffering? You know, I I had, I, have you ever lost a friendship over a, a, an argument over a difference of opinion? You know, I, I mean, I did. <laughs> you know, and and it wasn't it hadn't you know it didn't matter that I was right because he thought he was right too. You know. What's the difference between 18 billion and 7,000? Trivial. So the standard here for opinions is does it cause suffering? Does Does it enhance our suffering or does it attenuate our suffering? And can we, can we you know, we rely on our opinions. That's where it, what it comes down to. We depend on them for guiding us in our behavior. Our behavior flows from our opinions. If you look at the Eightfold Path, the first, the first step is understanding, right understanding. And the second is right intention. Our intentions flow from our understanding. Always, whatever you think the way you think things are will generate the way you behave the way we behave. So relationship becomes a realm of practice. It becomes, you know, perhaps the most, the richest source of practice. I think often of sitting on the cushion as sort of like learner wheels. You know, the hindrances all show up, right? Anybody notice the hindrances all show up on the cushion? But they show up in relationships too. The same, the same hindrances, you know, uh, desire, wanting, uh, maybe wanting, wanting your partner to be different, aversion, not liking, you know, laziness in a relationship, restlessness, can't stick with it, doubt. These things show up in relationships as well. So relationships is a realm, a realm of practice, and I thought I would just end by suggesting a couple of ways in which, well, they're not new, you've heard them before, but um, some of, the, some of the, the Buddha's teachings on practice that might be particularly useful. Cultivation of metta is very helpful. To be able to regard every experience, every moment that arises with friendliness, is that's the heart of awakening. I've been um, studying a, a, a British scholar recently, a guy named John Peacock, who suggests that you know his his contention is, even though non-contention is the standard, but his his contention is I don't think he really well. What he suggests is that in the scriptures, if you read them uh, in the original, and he reads them in. 14 languages, including the Tibetan version and the Chinese version and the Pali, says metta is a full path to enlightenment, metta practice. It's a full path to enlightenment that has been relegated to a second tier status by 
need I say, a bunch of grumpy monks who've been in charge of the Theravadan tradition for a while. You know. You know, and Meta seems to be maybe more of a feminine kind of, and so it's sort of. But he he says it is a Brahma Viharas. He says that in the time of the Buddha, you would know what that meant. The divine abode. This is an awakened state, a fully awakened state. Metta, uh, sympathetic joy, compassion, equanimity. Equanimity. Is there any better description of Nibbana? He says these are fully awakened states. So the cultivation of these states, a practice to bring to our, our relationship training. And, and the, the precept practices. The precept practices are, in a, in a, in a sense, they're renunciate, renunciate practices. They're letting go of our impulse, the impulses that arise that lead us to make things worse. <laughs> you know, I mean, really, that's the task, is not to make things worse, at, at, at a minimum. You know, precept practice. I mean, how did... Sometimes we wonder how precept practice works. Let me just give you one other example. You know, when we take these resolves, what happens? I, I was really lucky in 1969. I was John Cage, who was a composer and a, a, a student of D.T. Suzuki's, a Zen student of D.T. Suzuki's, um, was teaching a class at UC Davis. I was in Davis then too. Um, and at one point in, in this course, he said that for him, the, the minimum ethic is do what you say you're going to do. And for some reason, I just I said, oh my gosh, that just makes so much sense. I, and that's been a resolve of mine since then. And I found that what it, what it, what it, <laughs> what it does is if you say you're going to do something, if you change your mind later, you still got to do it because you've resolved to do it. And so it makes me very careful about what I agree to do, what I offer to do, what I plan to do. It's made me very mindful of all of the promises that I make in regard to my time. And when you do these, when you take these other precepts, when you, when you really take them as personal resolutions, not as wishes, but as resolutions, they, it works the same way for them. And the last, the last thing I'd suggest um, is study. Interestingly, the cultivation of right view is very helpful. Um, one of the things John Peacock says is that historically, study and practice are not separate. When you hear in the Metta Sutta, the Buddha say, uh, don't deceive another or despise any being in any state. You say, well, the Buddha just didn't know my next door neighbor. <laughs> yeah. Or do you say, <clears throat> I've got some work to do. So what I do is I look <clears throat> to the excuse me, to the Buddha's teachings for some guidance. For you know. Um, and then I I've got a clue, non-contention. I may not be there. You know, I I I understand grumpiness. Um, and practice it myself at, uh, at appropriate times. Um, but 
it helps to recognize what you're encountering in your practice, and it, and it, it helps uh, direct the practice as well. So I, you know, when, when it comes to relationship, I, I just, I, I can't, I always recall what Anaruta said. Why not set aside what I'm minded to do and do what the other is minded to do? It may not be something that I'm ready to do all the time, but it's, it can function as sort of a, a guiding star, and I recommend it to you. Well, why don't we? Why don't you? Um, let's take a minute or two and see if there are questions or comments, thoughts, irritations. Please. Ah. And sometimes the person, sometimes that's, uh, this other person would wish that you would state an opinion. And mm-hmm. it's very bland and kind of boring. But the other person doesn't have mm-hmm. Well, we can certainly, we can generate opinions. Opinions sort of, they're sort of like salmon eggs, you know? I mean, there's just a gazillion of them. We can offer them at the drop of a hat. You know, I don't think the Buddha is suggesting codependence. And, I've, and, it's, and I think we can recognize the difference. Um, because because the, the idea here is not to try to please the other or to be what the other wants, but to just not be a prisoner of our own compulsions, of our own wishes, our own opinions, you know, if we don't have a choice about how we behave, how free are we? You know, and so the codependence is not about choice. The Buddhist path is about freedom. And to be free, we have to see clearly. Because if a compulsion, if an impulse arises to want something, and we have to act out on it or suppress it, how free are we? Yes. I was at a workshop uh, with George and Deborah Taylor on relationships. Mm-hmm. And they mentioned something that one of their teachers said that was so striking as true. And the comment was that relationships develop in proportion to the degree that you experience and share realization. Deep truth. And that, that has served as a kind of a guide to me that um both in maintaining that in practice and also as the reason the relationship is a path to mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Any other yeah. Mm-hmm. An amazing concept, and one that we all suffered with, I personally suffered with, 
trick is that if, we, if we're not going to get latched onto who's right, we'll get tricked by what's right, what's true, and what's false. So true and false, the same trap. Because if we, if we have a thought about what's true, then I'm going to stick with that one. And then it, it enhances ego to be, well, we're right back to right again. So true and false is the same thing. It's not true or false. That's not the standard, the Buddhist standard. In fact, you know, the, the middle path is not true or false. It's both true and false, and neither true nor false, which violates the, the logical law of the excluded middle, which has been around since Aristotle and which we cling to ferociously. But the Buddha was a different, he was not hanging on to that one. So, the, the issue for him is, does it enhance suffering or does it attenuate suffering? Yeah? So what if your best understanding of the situation is that somebody else appears to be increasing suffering? Yeah, well, there are different ways. It doesn't matter. It's perfectly okay. Well, it depends on your ability to relieve that suffering. You know, if you are capable of doing that, you know, you would. But it may be beyond your ability. You know, these guys over here, don't they do the God grant me the wisdom to know what I can change and what I can't? Or what is it? How does it go? And to know the difference? You know, I mean, some sometimes, if if you saw someone, and, and there are different responses too. If you see someone enhancing suffering in the environment, you can, out of anger, go after him, or out of compassion, you can come to the aid of those who are being afflicted. So, what is your motivation? Is your is the intention out of anger and, you know, I. Make, make him stop, or is it one a compassionate one to relieve the suffering of the victims and maybe even the suffering of the perpetrator if you have the skill for that? Some of us are able in some situations to do that, and some of us are not. 
And it, it may vary. It doesn't say anything, you know. The Buddha set a high standard. And, you know, we may or may not. He could encounter Angulimala and, and in effect, bring him to a stop. I'm not sure I can do that. <laughs> Just offhand. So, you know, we do the best we can. And, you know, awaken as much as we can and do the best we can. One, okay. Yeah. I wonder how the Buddha would regard politics as right under the Because it's inherently contentious. It has what it is. Well, you know, it depends entirely on the intention that you bring. You can decide that you're going to, that the, those people who disagree with you, you're going to whip their ass. Or you can be working for what you perceive as um, what's beneficial and credit your opponent. And, and you know, I, I've, I found that in my career I had to, you know, it's not possible to find a single motivation behind any one action. There's just multiple intentions that feed. And so sometimes there were, if I do this, this is a good thing to do, I believe. This will be helpful, and it'll make me look good too. You know? So I would, I would let myself off the hook for that, because if I, if I thought, but if it was only you know, this is going to teach them to mess with me. Well, then I was very, I'd say, okay, I've got to work with that one. So, and, and right livelihood is, you know, right livelihood is really complex. I'd be happy to talk about it. It's, it's neglected, but it is incredibly complex in this, in this, uh, this culture because it's, you know, you're not supposed to deal in living things or in poisons. Well, what if you're the manager of a Safeway? Is that right livelihood? You know, there's there's a lot. Uh, there's it's a it's actually quite deep. So I thank you for your attention to the Dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.